Zelda has become such a popular game. There are YouTube videos, websites, and even apps that are dedicated to all kinds of questions, ranging from what your food and pet preferences are to sometimes more existential things like having more money or would you rather have more friends. This past December, my family and I were sitting one evening in the dark, thanks to load shedding. If you're listening from South Africa, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So my daughter brought her tablet over and we started playing some Would You Rather games as a family. And suddenly I thought, wow, wouldn't that make such a fun episode of Micromill? And so that's exactly what we're doing today. So today we're doing less microbe mailing and a little bit more microbe gaming. So I'm going to start off by introducing you to our expert guest. And I've got with me today, Dr. Lauren Richards. Hi, Lauren, and thanks for joining me today. Hi, hi, how are you? Good, thank you. It's really great to yeah. have you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, like you said, my name is Lauren. I'm an infectious diseases specialist currently working at Helen Joseph Hospital, which is in Johannesburg, South Africa. I recently qualified about six months ago, but I'm so far really enjoying it. And like I said in the bio that I sent you, it's definitely the best subspecialty to do. Couldn't agree with you more. That's definitely tops <laughs> on the list. <laughs> and next, I was supposed to have two juniors who are going to be the challengers on our game today, but unfortunately we had one last minute cancellation. So I've got with me the one and only Dr. Nokukanya Kanye <laughs> Lenake joining me as the challenger. Hello, Kanya. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Evan. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. As a pediatric registrar, I know a lot about a lot of the infectious diseases, but I'm like, really excited to see if I actually know some of the things that are going to be spoken about today. So yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> so even though you're a pediatrician, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of the stuff is going to be relevant to your everyday practice. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm hoping so too. And I hope nobody that's going to be testing me in the exams is listening to this, just in case. <laughs> well, if they do decide that they're going to be your examiners, you kind of, you, you, you'll slash out a whole lot of the ID stuff from your exam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so before we head into this fun game, just a couple of quick reminders. Remember to sign up for updates on the MicroMail website. And if you like MicroMail, make sure you share it with your colleagues and friends and also help us out with a rating on your favorite podcast player. So you all know how this works. I'm going to ask Kanya a question with two options. You're going to get to choose one of them or I suppose, should we allow you to choose both? No, I don't think so. You choose one of them. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> you've got to, yes. I think you've got to just bite the bullet and decide. Exactly. Bite the bullet, <laughs> choose one, and then we'll have Lauren who will talk us through an expert review on that particular issue. And I think she's actually got a final recommendation at the end of that. So are we ready to go, ladies? Yeah, ready. Yes, we are. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so question one, Kanya. Would you rather, as a person, develop pneumonia <laughs> caused by methicillin-susceptible Staphylococcus aureus, or would you rather develop pneumonia by a drug-susceptible mycobacterium tuberculosis? Hmm. Okay, so this is tricky because I know staph's complications, if they're really bad, can be mm. quite hectic. 
But I also know the treatment course for TB is quite long. And if you don't really stick to it, and I know I'm the worst at sticking to medication, that can also be problematic. (laughs) You know, we're the worst patients. Um, So for me personally, I think MSSA, I think I'll take the susceptible staph pneumonia. Okay. What do you think, Lauren? Okay, so... um, like you said, both of them can have their complications, but specifically mm-hmm. both of them can cause necrotizing pneumonias with lung destruction thereafter. So it mm. is quite difficult to choose between the two, especially if they can both have outcomes that cause a lot of morbidity. So when I saw this question, my immediate thought was to go with staph, just because I think we see so much TB here. And so I see a lot of mm. post-TB bronchiectasis. And so my kind of knee-jerk reaction was staph. But then I did go kind of systematically through everything. And ultimately, I stuck with staph. Um, so I agree with you. <laughs> and I think that what makes staph kind of more desirable, in, in inverted commas, um, is that it is a um, the duration of treatment is less. So generally, 7 mm-hmm. to 21 days, kind of depending on a few factors. You only need to have one drugs so cloxacillin or kefazolin whereas tb obviously you have four drugs to start off with and then move on to two and like we said it's six months as opposed to kind of 21 days and then you are less likely to get bronchiectasis post death so that was the kind of big factor for me the the only thing to kind of make you sway a little bit more towards tb is that the mortality rate is a lot lower so staph's mortality rate can actually go up to 56% if there is um, necrotizing infection, whereas the mortality rate of uh, pulmonary uh, TB is about 0.42. So there is the mortality rate that you kind of have to think about, but on the whole, I think staff's got more pros than cons. Mm. (laughs) You happy with your answer, Kadia? I mean, not really because I'm still having like pneumonia, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think in each of these questions we'd rather have none. Maybe we should make yeah. that disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> if you could choose the none, then we would say that. But if you had to choose one, <laughs> choosing none would just cancel out this entire episode. So <laughs> sorry, yeah. guys. That would be <laughs> okay. Question two. Would you rather have a urinary tract infection caused by an extensively oh. drug-resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa, or would oh. you rather have diarrhea caused by Clostridioides <laughs> difficile? That's a mouthful oh, <laughs> on its own. Yeah. Okay. I haven't had a urinary tract infection, but what, from what I've seen and what I've heard, I think oh my goodness, say, so it's, really, <laughs> it's really, really uncomfortable. It's really painful. And also, the treatment course from extremely resistant GCI, it just sounds long, it sounds painful, it sounds drip, need to be in the hospital, testing me, checking me, that just sounds quite difficult. And also the complications, you know, pyelonephritis going up into my kidneys, just sepsis from that, that sounds really hectic. Uh, diarrhea from C. diff, so I think that would also, it's also very uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, as long as I'm well hydrated, as long as I'm like keeping up with my losses, I'm not vomiting, um, we can manage it so 
I mean, I think I'll take the C. diff. I'll take my chances with the C. diff. Interesting. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there can be quite a lot of scope in terms of severity in all of these questions. So for some of them, I have kind of made a few assumptions. So in this question, I assumed that it was an uncomplicated uh, urinary tract infection and that it was a non-severe, uncomplicated uh, C. diff, just because the number of antibiotics, the duration, the route of administration all change with complications. So even though they're kind of quite complicated in inverted commas anyway, because of just their nature, I've kind of made them uncomplicated in that they're not a pyelonephritis or like um, an ileus. Yeah, we'd be here all night if you made them complicated. Exactly. So um, just to get it, get onto the same page, just to remember that an XDR pseudomonas is one that isn't susceptible to more one or more antibiotics in six or more of the antibiotic categories. I just had to like double check on that as well, just because <laughs> so I wanted to just put it in there as well. So we were all on the same page. And then there, um, these are pretty good infections just to compare, just because they're both unpleasant mm-hmm. um sometimes very <laughs> difficult to treat and the thing with both of them is recommended first line therapy for both of them isn't actually generally available either in South Africa or in the state sector in South Africa which I think we both work in so with diarrhea the CDF versus the UTI personally I decided that diarrhea was worse than a UTI but that is definitely <laughs> a, a, a personal choice so that was kind of a a con for the diarrhea for me, but obviously that's very personal. The uh, things to kind of go for, uh, or like the pros for having the UTI is that the treatment duration is a little bit shorter. So if it's an uncomplicated um, UTI, you can sometimes get away with five days, whereas with C. diff, you're generally going to go from 10 to 14. So most people can get away with 10. So you get kind of one point for UTI for duration. And then the risk of recurrence is a lot more in C. diff than the UTI if you've achieved source control. So uh, I, I forgot about in, that one. <laughs> so I actually went with the UTI because the others are the other things are kind of for me felt like they were the same kind of balanced. So with if you had all the antibiotics available in the world, you could go with um, one of the new beta lactam beta lactamase antibiotics for the UTI or for daxamycin for the C. diff. If you kind of have what we have in state, you could maybe get away with an aminoglycoside monotherapy, maybe even a stat dose for the UTI, and then vancomycin for the C. diff. Um, Whereas the hospitalization potential was kind of the same for both. So I went with UTI based on less risk of recurrence and duration of treatment. Interesting. (laughs) One point for diarrhea and one point for UTI. Do you think we need a tiebreaker here? We definitely need a (laughs) tiebreaker. Okay, well, in that case... But don't make it vomiting. Don't make it vomiting. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually agree with Lauren on this one. I'd much rather have a UTI (laughs) than diarrhea. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, I just think I mean they both horrible but I just think I'm thinking if I can't get up and get where I need to go to then I'm relying on other people and nurses and and I think that might be harder but you know each to their own I suppose <laughs> true 
<laughs> yeah, I, I'll I'll reconsider that one. I think I have to sleep on that one. Well, if I have diarrhea, okay. I can't really sleep. So maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the reason is that Kanya is actually a pediatrician. So she doesn't see as much C. diff as an adult physician does. Oh, true, potentially. And also, I think kids mm. are just sweeter and seem kind of cleaner in general to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i mean they they wear nappies all the time so we're changing the nappies anyway, anyway. so it doesn't really matter to us because they're there all the time so <laughs> okay so let's move on to question three then tanya so this one is right up your alley in fact would you rather be called to treat a neonate with stage three necrotizing enterocolitis or would you rather be called to treat an elderly diabetic patient with necrotizing fasciitis. Okay, besides the fact that I work in pediatrics, and this is not an offense to anybody, all the people just smell different. Like, I don't <laughs> know why. Like, older, the older you get, there's a particular smell, and then you add <laughs> necrotizing fasciitis. Like, why does it smell that way? And then you've got diabetes. So then there's just like probably candida somewhere running around. It's just a lot of smells. But as a pediatrician, I don't think I'm ready to deal with. So obvious choice for me in this case is a necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, because in a, in a you know, neonatal setting, I'm comfortable with the management. Also, you know, I can watch them for perforations. I can manage the hemodynamic instability. Neck fascia is very, very like time sensitive. You have to get into theater quickly. So definitely for me, I would take the neck, a necrotizing enterocolitis. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, when I saw this question, I, I thought the opposite, but I think that's probably because we work in, in, in different fields. But I thought it was a, a good, um, definitely a good question in terms of kind of comparison and would you rather potential because they're both at the extremes of age, which obviously makes things more complicated, but kind of in terms of presentation, treatment and complications. So just a little bit of background again, just so that we um, are all on the same page. And um, this is kind of, this is courtesy of up to date. Um, and necrotizing enterocolitis is one of the most common uh, GI emergencies in neonates. It's a disorder manifested by ischemic necrosis of the intestinal mucosa. And it's uh, stage three is in severely ill patients with or without a perforation. Whereas necrotizing fasciitis is a deep soft tissue infection where there is destruction of the muscle fascia and overlying subcutaneous fat. So I started kind of, so I just to let you know, I made a table basically for every question so that I could <laughs> kind of do a pros and a cons. And the first, the first um, row in my table said emotional toll. And I, I said that the emotional toll would be far greater on me in treating a neonate because there's a reason I didn't do pediatrics. It would be completely emotionally draining to treat a neonate. So that was kind of one tick for having the elderly diabetic <laughs> because I just, I, I don't think I could, I, I could, I could, well, I can't do pediatrics. So there we go. So that was one tick <laughs> for the diabetic for me. Um, and then the kind of biggest thing that made me sway towards, oh, so basically I chose the diabetic and the, other than emotionally being uh, easier for me was the mortality rate. So mm. with the neck fash, the mortality is about 20%, but it obviously does increase 
kind of with with increasing age. But when I was looking at, because I had to do a bit of research on the necrotizing um, enterocolitis, just because obviously I'm I'm not very familiar with it. But when I was looking at it, the mortality rate was 23 to 52%. And the 52% actually came from a South African study, which was done at Tigerberg Hospital. And they found that the 30-day mortality for a necrotizing fasciitis class two or more was 52%. So I was going kind of on a 20 versus 52%. Mm. The other Mm. things that made me say diabetes rather than the the neonate was that with a neonate, you have to have a central catheter for total a parental nutrition to rest the bowel uh, well this is what I've read <laughs> so that's just um TPN and and central lines and the potential for infection is just so so high whereas you could potentially get away with a peripheral line in the neck fascia although I know in theater they probably would have wanted to put in a central line and then the last thing was that again according to South Africa that South African study which was done at Tigerberg 50 to 63% of these babies have long-term um, sequelae. So whether it's uh, malnutrition or neurode- neurodevelopmental delay, I just thought that was incredibly high. Whereas this um, elderly patient is going to have a very prolonged recovery with wound closure and um, coverage. They may not be kind of long-lasting complications. Both of the, the bugs that are kind of involved in these infections are both quite bad so they were kind of on a equal standing the number of antibiotics there was kind of one to three in the neonates kind of two to three in the um, diabetics so kind of the same um the diabetics likely going to be in the diabetic ketoacidosis and then you've got to think about all the pharmacokinetic changes with the elderly but ultimately based on the mortality the complication rate and the fact that you are dealing with central lines and TPN, I chose the diabetic. So it's actually quite interesting that you speak about the emotional toll, because when we actually look at these neonates, I actually think they respond quite well. If you catch them early enough and you um, do appropriate fluid management, you get on top of the electrolytes early, you involve the pediatric surgeons early, and you house them in an environment that is sterile. So you make sure that you're, you know, you're uh, sepsis control is quite good. These babies actually um, have quite a good turnaround. And um, I actually find that emotionally for me, they actually respond to the therapy I'm giving them. That was the big thing. And it's funny because that's why I did not do adult medicine is because, you know, for the <laughs> most part, resuscitations and management plans don't really work in in, in adults, excuse me, because they either feel like, oh, you know, it's my life, I can do what I want, or they've got so many complications and you have to think about all these other things. Whereas in neonates, you know, 90% of our resuscitations are successful, especially when they're done well. Um, they're very responsive and you just have to monitor them well. And I think in states sometimes, it, it sometimes seems like it's overwhelming, but if we just do simple things all the time, then our NECs actually do quite well. Yeah, the mortality, oh, sure. You know, as well as these babies do, they do actually get quite sick. So I agree. I'll I'll agree with you there on the mortality. But also with the central lines, you know, I think we do have regular micro rounds where we, you know, speak about the organisms in the units. We adjust our antibiograms. We ensure that we're getting appropriate empiric and culture-directed antibiotic cover. And we're also changing our lines. And we're, we're adamant about that. You know, we're not keeping a line in too long. So I feel from that point of view, when we can control all those factors, it actually helps with the neonates. Whereas 
I feel with an elderly person who's diabetic, their veins are probably not that good. I'm going to be cold <laughs> all the time to come and drip them. They're probably going to pull off the drip because they ketotic and they're acidotic and they're probably going into a diabetic encephalopathy. So I'll take my chances with the small person. <laughs> That's a, Thank you for your kind of um, perspective because obviously mm. yeah it's just really helpful to see and I'm really glad that obviously the mortality rate does seem quite high but you do have survivors mm. so um and and it's so interesting the reasons why you did peds as opposed to um adults and why I did adults as opposed to peds so um so I, this is why I love different specialities because we can work together you can do your thing I'll do my thing <laughs> exactly exactly we need a doctor for every patient population <laughs> exactly yeah exactly <laughs> So it was really nice to actually hear both perspectives here. And um, clearly, uh, Kanya is a passionate pediatrician and, and vehemently <laughs> disagrees with you, Lauren. <laughs> so we'll just agree. That's disagree. fine. No problem. I think, I think it would be a very boring world if we all agreed on everything. That's true. That's true. Okay. So question four then. Kanya, would you rather have yes. typhoid or would you rather oh. have epidemic Typhus. Now, I know this is not something we see a lot in South Africa. So, are you feeling comfortable to answer this one? I'm trying to remember <laughs> <laughs> what's the difference between the two. Um, yeah, that's a so typhoid or endemic typhus, epidemic typhus, epidemic typhus. Mm. Um, can always call a friend or a, a call call me and I can help out if there's no. <laughs> you know, I, I really and... need to escalate. Yeah, I need to escalate um and call for a consult from infectious diseases if I can <laughs> maybe <please>. from Vin. <laughs> <laughs> Any anybody somebody help? <laughs> I think Lauren, you just gonna have to go into this one. Okay, sure, no problem. I, I mean, I can always give a bit of background, and then you can decide if you want. But let's, uh, let's see it. Let's let's play it by ear. Yeah, let's do that. Because they have such similar names. Again, let's orientate ourselves. So, typhoid is also called uh, enteric fever or typhoid fever, and this is caused by the gram-negative bacilli Salmonella uh, enterica with the serotype typhi, or um, sometimes included are the serotypes paratyphi A, B, or C. So this is an infection which is endemic uh, to South Africa, and this is transferred by the fecal-oral route. Then typhus. Oh, so when this I is typhoid Mary. That's typhoid. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Yes. One. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, um, so just went just to let you know that when I received the kind of questions, I just got typhus. I didn't um, under typhus. Uh, or rickettsial typhus, there are two infections. So one is endemic, like EN, or murine typhus. And this is caused by uh, rickettsia typhi. And this is transmitted by the rat flea. So this isn't found in South Africa. This is normally found in Southeast Asia, North Africa, Mediterranean, or North America. And then the other typhus is epidemic typhus which is caused by the Rickettsia prowazekii, and this is transmitted by the body louse. And it's often found in crowded environments with poor hygiene, as you can have, um, expect. And this is the most kind of recent case reports have been described in uh, Burundi, Rwanda, Ethiopia, South America, Asia, and Algeria. 
So I actually went with both. I, I kind of compared murine typhus, epidemic typhus, and then typhoid. Hmm. Do you mm-hmm. want to take a guess or do you just do you want to <laughs> carry on, me to carry on? You know, I feel like because typhoid fever is in like is, is present in South Africa and enough people will see it, they would be able to diagnose it and treat it quite quickly versus the other one because we don't really see it. So based on that, I'll take the typhoid fever. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that. It's definitely it's on my kind of on my road on like diagnosis. So, so it was definitely a, a component of my decision-making. So I ultimately went with murine typhus. So this is the endemic typhus. So this is based, um, the main reason here is basically actually the mortality rate. So like mm. you said, murine typhus and epidemic typhus aren't really found here. And so whoever the treating doctor was would have to have a very high index of suspicion or at least kind of thinking of rickettsial infections. And so based on that, so I contacted John Freen, who works at the NICD in in parasitology, because I actually wanted to know if we could diagnose these um, rickettsial infections here in South Africa, just because we don't have a lot of we don't see a lot of them. And um, yes, we can, but it has to be specifically requested and it has to be sent to the NICD. And there is actually a PCR available. But like I said, the index of suspicion has to be high. Someone has to be asking where the person traveled to and if they had any lice on them or if they found a flea. And so there is an ability to diagnose them, but it is difficult. So the reason I went with the murine typhus was that Even if you don't treat it, the mortality rate is 0.4%. But if you don't treat epidemic typhus, you have a mortality rate of 20 to 60% of of a chance of dying. Hmm. And then typhoid, so enteric fever, your mortality rate is 2.5 to 4%. So, I mean, epidemic typhus definitely has the highest mortality rate. Oh, treated, let me let you know. So treated is 3 to 4%. So that's kind of similar to the typhoid, but the mortality rate for murine typhus is definitely the lowest. The other thing is that obviously you can become a a chronic carrier in typhoid, like you said, typhoid Mary, who was a chronic carrier and went on to infect many people. Epidemic typhus, you can actually have um, recurrence of it, which is often mild, but there is a potential for recurrence, whereas murine typhus, you don't, um, it won't reoccur. The only thing that's kind of against murine typhus is its complication rate was the highest kind of amongst all the the three uh, infections. So typhoid patients can have uh, complications normally in 17%, whereas the murine typhus was 26%. So yeah, the sure. the rest of kind of when trying to compare them all, the symptoms were kind of on par. Antibiotics, you are generally having one antibiotic. Um, durations generally the same, kind of seven to 14, seven days. Um, mm. And then, um, so yeah, so the, so my um, my comparison or my choice came from the mortality rate and the potential for the uh, chronic carriage. Mm. so I went with Miriam very interesting sure I'm very glad I called you for a consult because I wouldn't have diagnosed this myself (laughs) yeah hopefully I mean that's why history is always so important where did they travel yes you've convinced me Lauren um I was gonna go with typhoid for the same reason as Kanya did 
but yes. a, a mortality of 0.4% treated or untreated. That's pretty convincing. Yeah, I think, Shane, you, you were talking, I mean, I don't know if you brought in murine typhus, though. Hey, you were thinking more of kind of epidemic versus. Yeah, but still, yeah, you okay. convinced me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> cool. okay, question five, Tanya, would you rather be neutropenic or asplenic? Oh, that's a hard one. Mm, it is a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> Am I neutropenic because of, like, can we think about the cause of the neutropenia or is it just like neutropenic full stop? No, so I, I can, sorry, Ben, if I can jump in here, just because I assumed that um, I was a patient with inadequate bone marrow production. So basically, neutropenic yes. um, because of chemotherapy or agranulocytosis, as opposed to kind of hypersplenism, because um, okay. they don't really have uh, an increased rate of infection. So assume you have cancer slash chemotherapy induced neutropenia. Okay. Well, then in that case, I think I would prefer, oh, this is hard. Okay, I think then I would prefer to be neutropenic because, well, if I'm in a hospital setting, because we can monitor my cows, uh, we can start antibiotic therapy early, we can um, monitor for any complications early. Whereas if I'm a splenic, I have to get vaccines every year. <laughs> <laughs> which might not be I don't really like needles it's not my thing and I think once I'm off the treatment course for the neutropenia and once I treat whatever it is that's causing the neutropenia I think then I'll be fine whereas with the asplenia you know the asplenism I have to just constantly be on the lookout for organisms and encapsulated organisms vaccines it just seems like a lot of work um I this has actually stumped me but yeah I'll take neutropenia that's so interesting because I feel like all the things you didn't like were the things I was I was like yes that's that's great. <laughs> so I think it's it is quite like a lot of personal preference here. Um, so I went with being asplenic, but I'll let you know why. <laughs> so with, so obviously this is again a really great question because they are both severely immunocompromising conditions uh, where you have a very high risk of developing severe infection which often requires hospitalization and they both have a very high mortality rate if you do become infected so again just to, again I just reminded myself of everything because I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't telling lies and get, going on the record with things that weren't actually true but so just again to get, get us back to down to kind of ground zero our spleen has a central role in clearing pathogens from the bloodstream and controlling infections, particularly the encapsulated bacteria, exactly like you said. And then just to remember that the white pulp of the spleen houses the body's immunoglobulin producing B cells, which are critical for, for producing antibodies. And then just to define the neutropenia, I took it as an absolute neutrophil count of less than 1,500 cells per microliter. So... I chose to be asplenic. The reason is that when you're neutropenic, you are susceptible to all and any infection. So that's bacteria, viruses, or fungi. Whereas the, when you're asplenic, you definitely are susceptible to some severe infections, but it's, it's they are kind of a small group. So these encapsulated organisms in particular so I just feel like you've got a smaller pool of potential infections <laughs> that are out to kind of get you. 
the other thing is that you can really, you can mitigate these risks very easily. So you can get your vaccinations. Not all of them need boosters. So you can get your strep pneumo vaccinations, both of them. So like in South Africa, we've got the 13 and then the 23. And then uh, Neisseria meningitis does require a booster kind of every five years, depending on which one you get. And then Haemophilus influenza, you don't need a booster. You do need yearly influenza virus vaccines, but everyone should be get, getting that regardless of whether you're immunocompromised or not. And then obviously your COVID vaccines. The other thing is you can, um, and what a lot of asplenic patients should do is carry an emergency supply of antibiotics. And as you kind of counsel them and tell them, you know, at the first sign of any kind of infection, you start your antibiotics and you get yourself to the hospital. The the things that um, kind of made me choose this asplenia was that you can mitigate the risks. It's a kind of smaller group of organisms. And uh, generally, when you are septic or have an infection, you are presenting very typically. You've got a fever, you've got a cough, if you've got a pneumonia, you've got a headache, if you've got a meningitis. So that was kind of why I chose it. Whereas with the neutropenic patients, you can be you're at risk for anything and they present very atypically. So you can't really rely on typical symptoms. And so you are a little bit in the dark in you throwing kind of empiric antibiotics out there and just doing lots and lots of investigations. The one thing that kind of made me sway a little bit towards neutropenia, which was exactly your point, is that it's often finite. Like, you know, you receive your chemotherapy and then you recover. Um, whereas asplenia, you have a lifetime risk of immunocompromised. But um, yeah, when looking at mortality, they were actually quite similar. And the risk of infection is, yeah, I mean, it's, it, they both, it, they're kind of similar in, in that sense as well. That is quite convincing. Yeah, I think I'll still take, definitely take my chances with the neutropenia because <laughs> I can't think for okay. the rest of my life, every time I have a fever, I have to like... <laughs> So I think it's just, yeah, it is really important how personal preference really plays like <laughs> a huge factor into things. But that was very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely convinced me, Lauren. Before you started, I also thought, no, not neutropenia. That's, it's really devastating. Yeah. You've got a convincing argument. So we're halfway through. We've got another five questions to get through. Next one, Kanya, would you rather develop a central line associated bloodstream infection? with either a vancomycin-resistant enterococcus or with a vancomycin-resistant staphylococcus aureus. So both vancomycin-resistant. With regards to central line infections, they're not nice at all. Um, but enterococcus is staphylococcus. I think I would go because I'm more comfortable with treating that one but I also know the antibiotics used to treat that one can be very very limited whereas with the intracoccus we have more options that I know in state the complications as well associated with the treatment are a little bit less and you can correct me even in the intracoccus with the vancomycin resistant intracoccus um, and I think the complications as well with the intracoccus would be less than the staph so I think I'll go for it cool okay so with this again i just wanted to clarify that i assumed um that as the patient that i had an obvious source of sepsis with only enterococcus cultured with a short 
to end catheter. Just because um, there is some debate about treating enterococcal infections when it's part of a polymicrobial infection, or if the patient is asymptomatic without an obvious source of infection, and only one blood culture. And then if you've got a long-term central line, so that it just kind of changes uh, management. And then I similarly assumed that I had an uncomplicated uh, vancomycin-resistant staph infection with a short-term catheter. So uh, again, two very horrible infections that are generally <laughs> hospital acquired and difficult to treat. So I agree with you. I went with the uh, intracoccal infection. Um, and the reason I went with it was it is a, a less virulent organism. In terms of treatment options, the IDSA recommends doing a transesophageal echo. So not just a transthoracic echo, but a more invasive kind of esophageal echo to rule out infective endocarditis kind of no matter what the signs and symptoms are. Whereas with an intracoccal infection, you don't need an echo unless you've got a murmur, a new murmur or kind of signs of infective endocarditis. The duration of treatment for the staph infection is at, at least 14 days. So this is kind of in an uncomplicated patient where you can remove the line. Whereas uh, the duration for the intracoccal infection is shorter, so five to seven days, again, if uncomplicated. And then the kind of big thing was that the risk of developing infective endocarditis with an intracoccal line-associated infection is about 1.5%, uh, whereas with the staph infection, it's 25 to 30%. Hmm. Sure. So that was the big thing that swayed me towards intracoccal. And then they both actually, interestingly, both had have very high mortality rates. So that was, that was, they were quite balanced on that side. There is a greater than 30% mortality rate for the staph, whereas intracocci, it was a reference for 53%. So generally it's 23%, sure. but it can go up to 53%. And unfortunately they said greater than 30% for the staph. So I don't have a, an exact number there, but um, yeah, intracocci based on the virulence, you don't need an echo, short duration of treatment, and less chance of endocarditis. Sounds good. Cool. <laughs> you convinced me. <laughs> mm. Mm. Right. Next one, Tanya, would you rather have, since we were already talking about endocarditis on the previous question, why don't we just talk some more endocarditis? <laughs> would you rather mm -hmm. have effective endocarditis due to Coxiella bonetii or Bartonella species? Batum Vin, these are hectic. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well toss Firstly, can now. I spell Coxiella bonetii? <laughs> you want to toss a coin? Oh, Coxiella bonetii or Bartonella species? This is when you say, I need uh, ID to help. Yes, yeah. Uh, can ID please give me some background? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, do you need, sorry, I did. I completely interrupted you there. So sorry, do, do you want me to, to give you a bit of background? Yes, can I please ask for an ID consult on these two? Because okay. I, I have no idea. So these are two really interesting infections because they both cause... Um, culture negative infective endocarditis. So patients mm. definitely have infective endocarditis based on other criteria and you do your cultures appropriately prior to antibiotics, um, three good high volume cultures and they come back negative. You then start to have to start thinking of other organisms that are maybe a bit more difficult to culture in the lab. 
Vin knows a lot more about this than I do, but you need to start thinking about these two. So Coxiella burnettia or Bartonella species. So Coxiella is transmitted most commonly by inhaling or ingesting unpasteurized milk. And then in terms of Bartonella, the two main species that cause infective endocarditis are Quintana, which is associated with kind of homeless or lack of housing and infestation with body loss. That's how it's transmitted. And then there's Hensley, uh, which is transmitted by the, it's it's an associated with cats. So it's again with fleas. So I don't know if you, do you, do you want to kind of take a guess after a little bit of background or? I mean, no I feel pressure. like I'm going to lose either way. So <laughs> let's, because I've heard the name, let's go with the Bartonella, just because I've heard that before. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool. All right. So I actually went with Coxiella. I mean, you know, 50 cent chance. <laughs> also, it's, it was actually a very hard one. They are quite similar. So the reason okay. I went with this, so, so symptoms are, and kind of valves that are involved, very similar. Bartonella is more aortic, but Coxiella is aortic and mitral. The diagnosis is kind of the same. It's based mostly on serology and then culture and PCR of the valve if you do go to surgery. So the reason I chose Coxiella was because the need for surgery was a lot lower than Bartonella. And I've just seen it's such a massive surgery with huge amounts of kind of complications and things. So I think that if I could avoid opening up my chest and having someone insert a new valve <laughs> into me, I think I would just, I would definitely do that. So Coxiella's risk or need for surgery was about in about 46% of patients, whereas Bartonella is 75% chance um, wow. of needing surgery. Sure. So that's kind of why I went with it. The mortality rate was pretty similar, maybe slightly lower for Coxiella. It was 5 to 10% as opposed to kind of 9 to 12%. And then the one thing that makes me kind of think about having Bartonella is that the Duration of therapy is four weeks, whereas Coxiella, you have to be treated for at least a year and a half, potentially even longer. Oh. So it is very hard because, you know, almost everything was the same except for the need of need for surgery was lower in Coxiella, but the Bartonella was less or the duration for treatment was less. But I chose I'd rather take treatment for 18 months and have a lower risk for surgery. Now that's interesting because I'm the other way. Give me the surgery. Let me get out of hospital. Let me be sorted out once and then I'm fine. Like, please. But Vin, why is it so difficult or, or what makes it difficult to culture these organisms in the lab? So a lot of these are intracellular organisms. And remember when we're culturing on blood agar, chocolate agar, that sort of, they aren't actual cells that we are inoculating with these organisms. They're also very fatty in terms of the uh, nutritional requirements, etc. So it's just very, very difficult. Ooh, very interesting. Thank you for that question. It's so interesting in just in terms of if I present the facts to people, you know, like if you literally say these are the facts, some people will still like, you know, choose one of the other just in terms of personal preference. So it's just very interesting. Mm, that's true. <laughs> okay, so then moving on to the next one. Tanya, would you rather have plague or would you rather have anthrax? <laughs> plague or anthrax? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. uh, <laughs> I think I would rather have anthrax. Sure, that's a tricky one. 
so imagine yourself in this post-apocalyptic movie. Yeah, yeah. And think go with plague or go with anthrax. <laughs> so I, I think, I think with plague, the problem is with plague, I can't be around other people, and I really like other people, <laughs> and so I. I would have to stay away from them and isolate and that's COVID all over again. So I feel like we're already post-apocalyptic in a way. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to do that again. Um, anthrax, I know the from what I can remember, and which isn't much, is the respiratory complications are quite severe. And but yeah, I think I think anthrax, hey? Because I, I just don't want to be separated from people for so long. But I, I need background. Can micro and ID, can you help me with just a little bit more background? Go for it, love. Sure, you definitely, yeah, you definitely want anthrax. I'm telling you now, we're both gonna, we're both gonna agree on this one. Okay, that's great. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so again, very good question for comparison, just because they're both associated with animal exposure, bioterrorism, which is quite a scary, and a very high mortality rate if not treated. The other thing is that you need a very high index of suspicion to diagnose them because they aren't seen frequently, specifically in South Africa or in our setting. So some background, plague is caused by a Yersinia pestis, and this is transmitted by fleas. And in this case, again, I assumed that I had bubonic plague because it's the most common. Um, so if you get plague 80 to 90% of the time, you are presenting with bubonic plague. And then anthrax is caused by Bacillus anthracis. And then when uh, humans acquire the disease naturally, so not through bioterrorism, it's normally associated with animal products and it can survive and sometimes even multiply in the soil. So uh, again, in this case, I assumed I had cutaneous anthrax, again, because it's the most common. And then I assumed I didn't have any systemic involvement with lesions on the head and neck because these um, change management. So it's, I wrote, even wrote here, overwhelmingly in favor of anthrax. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the reason I say this is symptoms of plague are acute, incredibly painful swellings in kind of your lymph node areas. So your axilla and in your groin. And just from reading, it just sounds like excruciatingly sore, whereas anthrax is painless. You often will get a, a bit of an itchy papule, which will develop into a painless necrotic ulcer with surrounding edema. So already your symptoms are better, especially in a post-apocalyptic -apoc world. If you're not going to find a doctor, <laughs> you'd rather, I think I'd rather have no pain. <laughs> and then the other things that uh, made me uh, definitely sway towards anthrax was if you don't get any treatment, your mortality rate from plague is 50 to 90%. So this is even bubonic. Um, so not even sure. um, kind of a more sensible one. So 50 to 90% of the time you're going to die if you don't get any treatment. Whereas um, with anthrax, 16 to 39% mortality without treatment. Still very high, but at least you've got maybe a better chance. So with treatment, anthrax mortality rate is less than 2%. But with treatment, plague, you still have a 14% chance of dying, even if sure. you are treated. And so that's why I went with anthrax. The diagnosis, uh, kind of antibiotics and duration, and the complications are very similar on both sides. And so that's why, yeah, um, I, they didn't really help with the decision. But uh, mortality and symptoms, you would want to go with anthrax. Sounds good. I mean, yeah. relatively. <laughs>
So we're writing a novel about a post-apocalyptic world and getting anthrax. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so our penultimate question. Kanye, I hope you've got energy for another mm -hmm. two. Yes, let's go. This is exciting. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather have a carbapenem-resistant enterobacterales bloodstream infection or an extensively drug-resistant acinetobacterbalmanii bloodstream infection? Okay, so these we actually do see a lot in our neonates, especially because they're so small, they're so premature, they have such prolonged hospital stays, they get, you know, central lines and antibiotics, and they're just constantly being exposed to organisms all the time. So this is very subjective. I think I would go more with the CRE than the XCR. Um, I know we can treat the XCR and we do have antibiotics to treat both, but I see just from a complication point of view, I think XCR is uh, worse. I know the treatments as well. I, this is more neonates. I haven't really done much reading in adults and complications in adults. So I wouldn't really, this could be a bad decision for myself, but <laughs> if, if I was a neonate, um, I think I would want to go with the, the CRE. And also just in terms of complications, yeah, I think I would I would choose CRE. I could be wrong. Cool. So both of these infections, as you said, are hospital acquired and difficult to treat with limited treatment options. So I went with the A Balmani. Oh, it's it's I'm mm -hmm. sorry, when I heard you say Balmani, yeah, that is probably how you say it. Hey. I've always said it that way because it's got two eyes. No, no, that, I think I mean it's two eyes. So that, that suddenly I was like, oh, I'm, I've been. I think I've been saying it wrong for the last. Then I think on the years. next one we need to have a linguist who's going to tell us how to say this. <laughs> yes, we'll have that. <laughs> Pronounce the microbe game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in terms of virulence, CREs are more virulent. So you want to get your antibiotics on incredibly quickly for one of those infections whereas you obviously want to get your antibiotics on quickly for an abalmani but if you kind of miss a day you have a little bit more wiggle room so it's just it's slightly less virulent and in terms of the number of antibiotics so I think ID and micro uh, kind of push and pull a little bit in this but we we generally will be happy to use uh, monotherapy in our abalmani patients whereas in a CRE you're going to be using two unless you have access to the new beta-lactame beta-lactamase agents and so 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 we base that on kind of the new ECMID and IDSA guidelines where they refer to the ADA and OVERCOME trials um, and so I went with the Abalmani only because it's slightly less virulent and there's potential for monotherapy as opposed to combination therapy. The duration of antibiotics is, is the same and the antimicrobial options are kind of the same as well. So you are going to be using, um, if you have access to the new beta-lactam, beta-lactamase agents, then that's awesome. But otherwise you kind of stuck with carbapenems that may not be completely susceptible, colistin and aminoglycoside. And then mortality is kind of the same, both both very high rates of mortality. Um, it was a, This was a very difficult one um, when I, I forced myself to choose, and that's why I went with the, the A-bomine. I'd be interested to hear which one Vin would rather have. Yeah, actually me too. I'd rather have neither, 
obviously, because that's <laughs> the ultimate option. <laughs> And because I can. No, I'm joking. Um, I actually would not choose the XDR Abomani on this one just because treatment options are so limited. Colistin is such a horrible drug. You know, based on what we see locally, the ideal drug is a bit of a unicorn in that we should be trying to access kefidericol. And, mm, okay. you know, we're just, I think the likelihood of us ever getting it because of the cost of the drug is just yeah. is so unlikely. Whereas with the CREs, we have a little bit of access to the new beta-lactam, beta-lactamases. So it's a matter of finding the right patient. But I hear you, the mortality is definitely higher for CREs in the adult patient. I see where Tanya is coming from with the neonates and the, the smaller babies who tend to actually have quite a high mortality with the XDR abomanis. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So I'm still on the fence. Well, you both swayed me as well, actually. <laughs> just <laughs> when I hear, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously I don't deal with the neonates. So interesting that, yeah. Yeah, and it's also really interesting that in different patient populations, you get different outcomes. Mm. And so it's nice to hear, you know, two different uh, treating uh, clinicians and how they would approach it based on their experience as well. Absolutely. Yeah, which is so helpful, to, which is, is just such an example of exactly why different disciplines coming together makes a better outcome for the patient. Because just, yeah, I mean, Finn saying, oh, you know, the treatment options and, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, no, you're right, actually. And, you know, you're going, well, if we're having a neonate, what I've seen is this. So it's, I'm always I'm always very much for a multidisciplinary team. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and that actually brings us to our last question. Which is, Kanya, would you rather... Oh, okay. <laughs> we could do another 10 questions and call you back another time. <laughs> yeah, I've never been so sad to not get an illness in my life. Okay, here we go. <laughs> okay, so would you rather have a vagrant human bite or an agitated pet dog's bite? Oh, definitely the dog. Humans are disgusting. Disgusting. No, <laughs> from what I've seen happen in the mouth and then the antibiotic courses and then the complex. Okay, if, if we're assuming it's just an uncomplicated human bite, the, the, the potential for complication is quite bad. And then the antibiotics is also a lot. And pet bites, you're just worried about rabies and you get your tetanus. And then if there's a little bit of infection, you're fine. So I'll take Bobby any day. <laughs> Listen, the Vins and the Lawrence, I think you guys can stay over there. <laughs> oh no, Kanye, you need to listen to you need to to when when Lucille um Bloomberg speaks about rabies again, I promise you you're gonna change your mind. Absolutely. <laughs> uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> I promise you you need to just hear a few of the heartbreaking stories. No, well let me let's go through it. Let's go through it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Interestingly, I actually have some experience to assist oh, me. No. In I know it's, it's, it's I have in fact been bitten by a human. It was not a vagrant Ooh. human, um, but it was whilst I was working as a medical registrar and a very agitated patient who had a psychiatric condition actually bit my hand. And I was very lucky I didn't have any complications. But yeah, I do actually. I, have, I, I was I, when I saw this, I was like, oh, I have some personal experience. <laughs> So, okay, so I, surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, I'm not sure um, how, how you, what you would think, but I actually am going with the human bite on this. And this is definitely from a point of view of not wanting to have the risk of acquiring rabies. 
So in a dog, so if, if I could guarantee that the dog bite didn't, uh, the dog definitely didn't have rabies, then I would go with dog bites just because the potential for infection is um, actually a lot less with dog bites. So you are going to develop an infection in five to 7% of the time as whereas um, a human bite is, you can, um, sorry, the potential for infection goes up to 25%. So definitely, I agree with you on that, on, on that kind of factors. That was the only thing that made me think, well, maybe I would go with the dog bite if I could guarantee there was no rabies. The problem with rabies is it's an agitated pet dog. So hopefully, you know that that um, you're hoping that that owner has vaccinated their dog, but they are agitated. Maybe, uh, maybe they haven't been vaccinated and your potential pathogen is rabies and that you like you said you want to go and get some immunoglobulin but this is often very difficult to acquire so even in Joburg we can definitely get it but I remember working in Barra trauma and we we didn't have it there um, and we had to phone around and it's it's it actually can be quite difficult to acquire and then the other thing is that it's got a hundred percent mortality rate and so you know your human bites you may have an infection and there may be kind of complications, but the mortality rate and kind of knowing that you could potentially die is, yeah, I think I went, that's why I went for the human bite. I actually did not know that there was a, a an almost 100% mortality rate in rabies. I just thought, I just knew it was very dangerous, but I didn't know how dangerous it was. Yeah, it's really hectic. They have been sure. survivors. But no one really knows why those particular people survive. There are treatment regimens, but they're kind of very few and far between. And um, it's a devastating, devastating disease. Sure. Okay, no, I'll take the the human bite. (laughs) It took us 10 questions, Lauren, to get Kanye to change her answer. Once she said 100% mortality, I'm definitely going to the other side. I mean, they're both pretty horrible. But yes, uh, I think if we're talking rabies, then that's it's It's a done deal. It's a done deal. Exactly. (laughs) Awesome, guys. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I learned so much. And actually, this was so much fun. It would be nice if we could have actually had this as a live game show with an audience. Maybe we must look at that sometime in the future. <laughs> yeah. Cool, an <laughs> I <would> love that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I hope I can convince you both to join me again sometime soon. Sure. I would absolutely love this. This is definitely helpful to my learning as well. Um, and I think some of the really interesting points that Lauren brought up, you know, comparing different points of view, different ages and presentations, and also just thinking about treatment duration and just mode of, you know, providing the antimicrobials is really important and can affect patient care. So it just helps me have better insights to what I'm doing with my patient care and also being able to counsel them better. So thank you so much for all of this information. It was life changing. <laughs> Such a pleasure. Thank you so much um, for your, your, just sharing your different point of views. Um, it was yeah, super interesting. And, and just whilst going through all these questions, I learned a lot too. So beneficial all around. Awesome. Listeners, let us know by social media or on email what you think of this episode. And would you like to see more of these? Remember to go ahead and spread the microbe mail contagion by sharing these episodes with your colleagues and friends. So until next time, that's it from me, Vin, and the entire microbe mail team. 
We'll see you again soon with more Contagious Mail.